Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's program, we're going to be talking about the latest report on the labor force in the United States and unemployment. We'll look at the student debt problem and what's coming down the pike around that. We're going to be talking about a wonderful poll that talks about how public schools really work in terms of what do the parents and children think about what's going on in our public schools. And finally, we'll be talking about the strike on the West Coast of the United States as the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union closes down Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, and all the rest. In the second half of the program, we'll be talking about the peculiarities of capitalism and the capitalist market that introduce the notion of the contradictions that beset this system and that we can learn from. So let's jump right in. The Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps records on the labor force of the United States for the United States government, and it issues a monthly report. And I want to talk to you about the latest one, that is the one from May 2023. A lot of people, including the President of the United States and many others, have pointed to the wonderful or the robust or the booming or the good jobs report of the BLS. Well, once again, we are watching cherry picking of statistics, carefully choosing those that shore up your self-image, what you want to believe, and ignoring those that undercut what you want to believe. So let me perform that function for the leaders who are afraid to go there. Here is what the May report of the BLS tells us. Number one, 6.1 million members of our labor force are currently unemployed. They are actively looking for work and unable to find it. In addition, another 3.7 million workers are working part-time but want a full-time job, which they cannot find. Three, there's a 5.5 million people who have stopped looking at least over the last month and therefore are not counted in the unemployed, but are listed by the government as people who want a job, have not found one, and have not spent the last month looking for one for whatever reason. Okay, this works out to 15.3 million workers. That's 10% of our labor force in this country. One out of 10 workers is in this situation. No job, that's most of them, or a part-time job when they need and want full-time work. A decent society would have a government agency devoted to working intensely with those 10% of our labor force. 15 plus million people unemployed. If you think that they are parts of a family, say, of three or more other people, we're talking 20% of our population. 
we have many agencies that work on a much smaller part of our population serving them. Why don't we have a really dedicated force? I don't mean agencies that give you a check because you're unemployed. No, I mean a government program that either helps you out while you're unemployed or, more importantly, finds you a job in the private sector with real energy devoted to it, or if the private sector can't do it, gives you gives you a good public sector job doing one of the thousands of things our society needs. We don't do any of that. We don't develop a child care program, an elderly care program, a program of greening the United States ecologically, all things that could absorb all these people in productive jobs. We don't do it. Remember that the next time you hear about capitalism and its efficiency. It isn't efficient, not if you have 15 plus million people in the condition we had them in May 2023. Well, the Congress of the United States is apparently committed to screwing our students, to not giving them the relief that had been promised, dangled in front of them. Not only are they not going to get relief from their debts, but the COVID suspension of the need to repay for a little while is set now to expire on the 29th of August. That's a couple of months from now. Wow. And only the veto of the president remains as the slim hope to get the 20,000 forgiveness for those who got Pell Grants and the 10,000 for those who earn less than 125,000 a year. No, Mr. Biden and the Republicans did not undo the tax cuts for corporations and the rich of 2017. Undoing them just a little bit would have taken care of paying for this relief to millions and millions of students. No, they didn't do that. And let me make the point as starkly as I know how. Conservatives in the Republican Party, almost all of them, in the Democratic Party, a lot of them. Conservatives don't care about student debt and are prepared to screw the students rather than help them. And so the real question is, will the students fight back? Will the students remember who it is who wouldn't relieve their debts the way the same people voted overwhelmingly to relieve the tax burdens on corporations and the rich? That's the real issue that comes out of this. My next update has to do with a poll commissioned by National Public Radio in cooperation with the Ipsos Polling Company, a global polling company of sterling reputation. They did a recent poll on how the public here in the United States views school teachers and schools. And I'm focusing here, as they did, on public schools, which was where most of our young people are educated in the United States. I want to focus your attention here because a very small minority of particularly far-right-wing folks have targeted schools and teachers, demanding to ban books, demanding to control what is taught and how it is taught, as if the public schools were in some sort of 
bad shape, needing right-wing correction. Well, here's what the poll of National Public Radio and Ipsos found. Number one, for K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade, public school teachers are overworked and underpaid. 80% of the public believe that, that public school teachers are overworked and underpaid. 66%, that's two-thirds of parents, of parents worry that if their young children are wanting to become teachers, that that will put them in financial difficulty. In other words, they understand it's so bad, they don't want their own kids going to the teaching profession because it is so underpaid. Majorities, over 50%, say they trust teachers more than school boards, more than governors, more than teachers' unions, and more than the U.S. Department of Education. There is no loss of faith, of faith in our teachers. That's a right-wing mistake, and I'm being kind here. 80%, 80% of the public poll said they believe teachers should teach about slavery, racism, and school segregation. The far right-wingers crusading against public schools say otherwise, but 80% want the teachers to teach those subjects. And finally, 60% of all of the public and over half of the public who identify as Republicans oppose boards of education or lawmakers from banning books in schools. So that's where the majority is on public schools. Don't be fooled by a loud right-wing minority. My last update is a kind of shout-out of a particular sort. I want to shout-out to a strike that began at the very beginning of June 2023 in or on the ports of the West Coast. The International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union, the ILWU, walked off in many ways, formally, informally, officially, unofficially. The workers stopped working in many of the ports, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, and so on. There's a long history of militancy in this union, a long history of the union showing it was able and willing to fight for what workers need and demand. And in the current atmosphere, of course, the militancy we see at Starbucks, at Amazon, would be also present among the ILWU folks. But it's also true that they've been negotiating with the shipping companies and those who run the ports for over a year. And those conversations and negotiations have gone nowhere. But unlike others who sometimes slink away, worrying that it's too scary to take further action, that's not the ILWU. So they've closed those ports. They showed the power of working people, which in the end needs to be demonstrated. 
If you don't have the worker, you don't get the work done. And that's what keeps a society running. It's a lesson to everyone, but also to the workers themselves. You do have the power. You have the ultimate power. And you need to use it because all the rest of us who work in our jobs need the inspiration, the model, the example, and the support of your solidarity. So I want to tip my hat to the ILWU, as we have mentioned, other workers and other unions. I've come to the end of the first half of today's program, but I want also to stress as we go to our break before shifting to the second half, that Democracy at Work and this program are committed to an ongoing exposure of what is going on that does not get the kind of attention and support and exposure from the mainstream media that it deserves. We are very aware, and we hope you are too, that the mainstream media in our society are overwhelmingly large, private, capitalist corporations. And as such, their number one priority, their famous bottom line, is profit. That's what guides them. That's what they focus on. And that governs what they select to cover and how they choose to cover it. We are not a profit-driven enterprise. We are not limited, constrained, or if you want, distorted by a profit motive. And that makes all the difference. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. In this second half, I want to engage with you two important topics. They both have to do with how the capitalist economic system works, but I want to highlight ways that it works that are self-contradictory, that cause more problems than they solve, that show that this system to use the language of the past that still works, is full of devastating contradictions that you may not have noticed or thought about, and that's why I'm going to focus on them here. The first one begins this way. Capitalists as a group, virtually all of them, are continuously trying to do what they call lower labor costs. The basic idea is if they can get production done in the factory, in the office, in the store, if they can get the work done at a lower cost of paying the workers who actually do it, that'll be more profit left for them. And that indeed is how it works. So we know what they do to lower the cost of labor. One of the things we call automation. They replace workers with machines. Nowadays, Workers are replaced by computers or by robots or in the coming months and years by something called artificial intelligence. But that's not the only way they lower labor costs. Here's another one. 
they move production and jobs out of the country to where wages are cheaper. They close the factory in Cincinnati and open another factory in Shanghai, China. They close the warehouses here and open them in Latin America, and so on. That's another way to save on labor because workers can get paid less in other parts of the world than they get paid here. And then there's a third one. Bring lower-paid workers from out of the country into the country, hoping that at least for a while they will accept lower wages than you pay to American workers that are born here and have different expectations. So capitalists are always using one or all three of these mechanisms to lower the money they give to workers. So then why is this a contradiction of capitalism? Well, that's very simple. Because the brain of the capitalist is so focused on saving money that he had to give to workers, and he now doesn't have to anymore because he automated or he exported the jobs or he brought in low-wage immigrants. He doesn't realize until later that if you give workers less wages, if you give fewer workers wages, that's that much less money out there that's available to be spent on your products. And a capitalist isn't going to make money unless he sells all that is being produced. If you cut what you give to your workers, you are cutting the market for what you sell. What helps you in one way bites you in the rear end on the other way. That's a contradiction of this system. So capitalists have frightened themselves by their own behavior. They don't want to face that their system is contradictory. They don't want to make an awareness in their brain that what they're working hard to do by reducing outlays to their workers comes back to them as insufficient sales of their products. So here's what they've done. And I want to show you the effects of capitalism's contradictions. Number one, a whole new industry was developed under capitalism. Never existed before. We call that industry advertising. Companies that produce something, a good or a service, hire an advertising enterprise to figure out how to get people to buy more stuff because they're suffering, they can't sell. And they don't want to admit to themselves, we can't sell all of our stuff because we've cut the wages we pay, we've laid off the workers we used to hire, and so on. So a whole new industry is devoted to getting us to shell out money we might otherwise not have, to play on our psychological concerns, our self-doubt, our worries about the future, our concern for our children, and tell us you can solve that problem or that one or that one by buying more. Feeling low? Go to the mall. Shop till you drop. Wow. This begins to teach people that your personal problems, your problems of relating to a mother, a father, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a spouse, and so on, can be solved by buying things. A lot of people spend a whole lifetime before they figure out that that's not good advice. But that's the result of the 
contradictions of capitalism. Here's another one. If you don't pay workers enough, what you better do is give them a loan so they can buy what you're producing because you don't pay them enough wages to afford it. That's the craziness of our system. The corporations cut the wages they give workers, lay off workers, move jobs overseas, discover then that the workers don't have enough money to afford what they sell, so they develop a program to fill the workers' wallets with credit cards so they can buy more than they can afford and go into debt, which makes them worried and anxious. And you know what makes them buy more drugs to cope with a life of anxiety? And here's another result of this craziness. It used to be when we have economic downturns, because capitalism is a very unstable system with downturns every few years. It used to be that the downturn was contained because you laid off a lot of workers and they couldn't buy stuff, and that was bad. But now it's worse, because when you lay off a lot of workers, it's not only that they can't buy things the way they used to, but they can't service their debts, which have accumulated. They can't meet their mortgage payments. They can't meet their car payments. They can't meet their student loan payment. And that then spreads the damage of a downturn all over the economy. Lots of bad things about our society come from the contradiction of capitalism, that it's always depressing the wage monies handed out and then having to cope with the result of insufficient sales. And now here's a second example. In the textbooks that I have had to teach all my life in economics, here's how it goes. Markets, we are told, are wonderful. You know why? When there's something scarce, not enough of it, the people who want it bid up the price. And then we are told, see, when the price goes up, that's an incentive for other producers to make more of this object because they want to get in on the high price and by producing more, they drive the price down. And so the market is a self-healing mechanism. We're supposed to marvel. You see, if the price goes up, it sets in motion the increasing output that drives the price back down. This lovely story repeated to one generation of economic students gullible enough to believe it after another is all wrong. And here's the simple reason why. Capitalists have long ago learned this lesson. And here's the lesson they've learned. If you can restrict the supply, you can drive up the price. Yeah, that might create an incentive for others to come in, which you don't want. You would like to keep the others out. You would like to prevent them. Why? Because then the price stays up and you make even more money than if the price didn't go up and if the price didn't stay up. So the system has developed ways to keep prices above what they need to be to pay for the cost of producing them and to give the capitalist a reasonable profit. Capitalists don't believe in reasonable profit. They believe in maximum profit. So they've developed ways to keep the supply too short so that the price stays real high. And you really know them, but I'm going to give them to you again. 
One of them is called brand loyalty. Here's what you do. You do a mammoth amount of advertising whose real purpose is to suggest to the public that the particular commodity you produce is different from what all the others who produce the same commodity are doing. That way, people will say, oh, I've got to get that brand because it's better than another one. Let me give you some examples, but you already know. Pepsi and Coca-Cola. That's sugar water with a bit of a flavor in it. A thousand other companies produce cans and bottles full of sugar water with a little flavor in it. They really are all the same, pretty much. The difference is minuscule and, for most of us, undetectable. But Pepsi and Coca-Cola have their picture with the happy folks at the beach drinking that stuff in front of us 24-7, teaching many people that there's something better than, magical, and so we will pay more for Pepsi and Coca-Cola than we will for all the other brands making pretty much the same thing. That's crazy. But we live in a crazy society made crazy by the contradictions of capitalism. Here's another example. This one comes from the milk farmers of America. They figured this game out too. The milk farmers decided long ago to stop opposing government rules about how clean the cows have to be and how clean the stable has to be, where the milk is taken from the cows. They supported the government mandating expensive machinery to keep that all clean. Why did they do that? Because the big milk producers, the ones whose names you know, they could afford the machinery, but all the little milk farmers couldn't. It's too expensive. So the big farmers supported the government, made for the cleanliness machines, all the little ones went out of business. The quantity of milk was reduced. The price went up, and the big guys made a killing in a profit. Wow. And where does that come from? Is that something to do with milk? No. It is something to do with wanting to keep the price high by restricting the supply. Then we have another example from recent history. A capitalist says... I can't produce as much as I did before. Why? Because, here we go, supply chain disruptions. I need these in, inputs to my production process. They come from Africa. They come from China. They come from wherever. And there's been difficulty. There aren't enough ships. Uh, one of them got stuck in the Suez Canal. There's this problem. There's that. And, you know, when there's not enough of my inputs, I have to pay more to get. And so I have to charge more. In other words, because one capitalist plays this game of driving up the price by restricting supply, everybody else has that excuse to do it too. You're being hustled here. Every large company has a supply department, a supply manager, a purchasing manager. It's their job to make sure that they get around any supply chain disruptions. To suddenly hear about supply chain disruptions should make you realize you're being hustled too. 
And then there's the most famous one from history. When a producer says, wait a minute, my only risk if I cut the supply and I drive up the price is that others come in, other producers that I compete with come in and fill in the reduced supply. So let me make a deal with them. There are words for that, cartel. One company gets together with all the others and says, look, let's all agree to restrict supply and we'll all enjoy the higher price. You all know that one too. It's called OPEC. That's how the price of oil and gas go up and down like a yo-yo. Capitalism's contradictions are at play, shaping a great deal of our lives. And that's why so many people are questioning and becoming critics of a system that works like that. Thank you for your attention. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.